And welcome back to another episode of the Hungry Takes podcast. It's a Thursday night, Matt, and we're back in the early part of July. You know, the summer is hot. And another thing that is hot right now is, of course, the NBA offseason with a lot of storylines there. And look forward to some great commentary here tonight. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, you know, like we joked, you know, this is a road show for the Hungry Takes program as I'm coasting back into Mississippi on fumes because of the price of gas. But nonetheless, Joe, we are here to bring everyone another segment of the Hungry Takes podcast. Absolutely. We've literally taken this show on the road, I guess. Multiple times. I feel like, look, in the pantheon of color cast podcasters, we're not nearly appreciated the the most. I mean, we were the first to do co-casting, right? We were the first to bring on guests. We're the first to do road shows. I mean, shouldn't we be signing autographs at this point? (laughs) (laughs) I would certainly love for that to be uh, uh, happening. Uh, you know, maybe we can uh, at some point have that happen. I know, you know, the, the time we put into it over the last year and a half. And so maybe at one point we'll get uh, get that credit. But, um, you know, for now, though, um, looking forward to uh, a fun show here tonight. Some basketball talk with the NBA. I'm looking forward to getting your thoughts on uh, the Baker Mayfield trade. Um, I've got a few thoughts on uh, the current MLB standings, especially with the New York teams. And then finally have a installation of the hungry take at the end. Yeah, I, I love it, man. I think I think we start exactly where you did, and that's NBA basketball. What is hotter than the off season in the NBA? Yeah, it's definitely uh, right up there, almost with the NFL. You know, with uh, the compelling storylines that you hear, um, free agency, the trade wins is really maybe even better than the games themselves. And I know, Matt, that one topic you definitely wanted to articulate on tonight is the news of Nikola Jokic, the uh, reigning two-time MVP in the regular season for the NBA, getting a record-breaking NBA contract recently. Yeah, you know, I think it's fascinating to me because as soon as the story broke that he has, like, the largest contract in NBA history, my literally reaction was to text you, is Nikola Jokic that good question mark? And and to me, I think a lot of the basketball heads out there listen and they assume he's that good, but I just don't think that many people actively get to watch this guy. No, that's certainly a compelling point because you think about the fact that he plays in Denver. It's also, you know, on the Mountain uh, West time zone. And so, you know, a lot of the games that he plays in are not going to be uh, receiving the press coverage, and a lot of times they're not going to be on at optimal times for a lot of people on the East Coast. Yeah, and, and I think that's really hard. So if you're in the Central East Coast time zone, especially considering those uh, Pacific, Mountain West, whatever games, they come on as the doubleheader. So you're already three hours into the night on basketball, and now you have to stay up late, understanding there's work the next day, and you're about to log your fifth, sixth, seventh hour of NBA action for a night. And so it's understandable why, you know, I wouldn't know about Jokic, why you may not know about Jokic, especially on this side of the Mississippi. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the thing about his contract, you know, it was surprising in the grand scheme of things, I think, to think about him as the highest paid player, even though he has the back-to-back MVP 
regular season credentials. I mean, you would think somebody like maybe a Giannis would have the highest contract now. Um, but I will say this, that you have Jokic, um, you know, a guy that scores at a high level. Um, he impacts the game in so many ways as a very underrated rebounder. I think I told you this in a text recently that I was looking at his stats and it kind of surprised me to see that he leads the league in rebounding over the last season. And then finally, Matt, I think that this is a decision that the Nuggets didn't have a whole lot of leverage on because the relevancy of the success of this franchise going forward is completely predicated on uh, the staying power of uh, Jokic in Denver. And with the fact that he's 27 years old, you could actually argue he's really about to enter the extra prime of his career. Because I always say that if you go from like age 28 to 30, I think for an athlete is really their best, best years because you're still, you know, able to move around as much as you want, but you've also got that experience too. Yeah, so I'll actually I'll go a little further than that. that. I think it's 28 to 32, but I think regardless, I think you nailed the, the time frame. And so if you're the Nuggets, you brought this guy on board, got him up to speed, and now he's got two NBA MVPs, and he hasn't even hit the highlight of his career yet. So the timing is impeccable from a contract standpoint. Absolutely, absolutely. And so – you know, it's going to be fascinating to see how the Nuggets uh, fare next season with uh, keeping Jokic locked up or locked in, you know, with this contract. And you've also got, you know, the return of uh, Murray to the team. And they've got some other impactful players like an Aaron Gordon. And so definitely an intriguing team to watch and see, you know, if they can maybe make a run in the, in the West. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, of course, Michael Porter Jr., who's fantastic, uh, former number one player in the nation in high school. But let, let me let me go full circle here, and let me answer my own kind of question that I tossed out to you, and that is, is Jokic that good? The answer is absolutely freaking yes, because after I text you that, Joe, I immediately watched about 15 minutes of YouTube highlights. Jokic is freaking phenomenal. Like, the softest hands for a seven-foot big man I have ever seen the softest touch I've ever seen around the basketball, uh, the basketball goal. Like he throws a shot up and it just hugs the rim, right? It doesn't even bounce off ricochet like a normal basketball. And then the, the last thing I'd say is his passing ability is up there with Doncic. And I, I don't even know who else to be honest with you. It's like him and Doncic are like two of the best passers I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, he's a guy that maybe Ben Simmons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you always heard, you know, used to hear a lot about Larry Bird, you know, from uh, Trail back in the day, being a great passer. And you think about how Jokic, you know, being a great passer, great rebounder, you know, has a, a high octane scoring ability. Like he only averaged what, like twenty seven points a game last year, and you know, he impacts the game like in so many ways. Yeah, and and, and the last thing I would say there, I mean, all the stuff we've highlighted, his abilities, his age the prime of his career, Joe, he's never even been hurt, right? Like ACL, Achilles, Steph Curry, weak ankles. I mean, the guy is 100% fresh, scoring out of this world, unbelievable uh, unbelievable abilities, headed right into the pinnacle of his career. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And so, you know, like I said, I, I would just kind of conclude 
uh, my thoughts on this topic by saying, you know, that obviously kind of surprised in the grand scheme of things to see Jokic get the biggest contract in NBA history. But if you're the Nuggets, you really didn't have a choice. If you didn't, and, and the truth is, you know, I'm sure any team wouldn't want to absorb that much cap space. But if you look at the talent, the numbers, the ability, the potential, if you're the Nuggets, par for the course, right? Pay the man. He deserves it. Yes. Yes, he did. And I want to talk about next, Matt, another, you know, just uh, such a noteworthy uh, player in the league. I mean, you think about Jokic and uh, his success. I mean, this guy has already accomplished even, you know, uh, light years ahead of Jokic, and that is uh, Kevin Durant. And uh, the speculation, you know, surrounding uh, where the two-time NBA champion is going to be traded since he has uh, requested uh, the trade from Brooklyn. And two destinations, I know we were both, discussing uh this week is uh the speculation about a reunion to golden state and then also you were telling me about speculation surrounding toronto i've also heard denver i mean uh where where do you think where where do you think this story uh, currently stands yeah honestly joe it's it's a nasty one right because the truth is when i run through the list of teams that I've either heard or think about related to Kevin Durant, I don't like any of them, right? And, and we can go through that list, but I don't know how the story plays out. I'll say I think he is the last domino to fall in free agency. Like he's going to absorb the landscape, see where others end up, and then eventually will sign to a team. But out of all the teams that have been mentioned, I don't like any of them. Well, I want to concentrate for a second on Golden State. Because it baffled me when I heard that speculation. Because here's the thing. I mean, I get that Kevin Durant, you know, is Kevin Durant. And I know that he led them to two championships. They went to three finals all three years he was there. And they wouldn't have won those two championships, I don't think, without him. But at the same time, he's going to be 34 years old at the start of next season. And the last three years, he's missed a lot of games. You know, he missed the entire season – 19 to 20, uh, recovering from the Achilles. And I think he's only played in 90 games in the regular season over the last two years combined. And so the um, trajectory of his career at this point, as talented as he is, is very fragile and concerning to me where if I'm Golden State, I don't want to give up all these assets. You know, these guys, they're young, like Jordan Poole, like a uh, James Wiseman. Uh, Moses Moody, I don't want to give up all those guys to get a Kevin Durant who, you know, might not uh, be on the floor the whole season. Yeah, and, and honestly, you know, the, the crazy part is Golden State, they do have the assets to make it happen. You name some of them. Pool, uh, you got Wiseman, a newly minted Andrew Wiggins. They could ship off, you know, now that he's a champion. But, you know, it's not the M.O. of Golden State. I mean, me and you talked about it before. They like to bring up their players, right? They like to hold assets. They draft well. They bring them up in their farm system under kind of the tutelage of Curry, Thompson, and Draymond Green. And so to, to trade those assets away would kind of be going away from what made Bowen State so successful. And so I understand it's familiar territory and the potential is there. I don't see it played out that way, though. Yeah, and I think that you'd be mortgaging, you know, you're the future of your franchise, and you won the championship with those pieces in addition to Curry and Thompson and Green, 
Like, it's not like you needed Kevin Durant to get over the hump and win the title like the case was in 2016 after they blew that 3-1 lead against LeBron James and Kyrie Irving and the Cavaliers. So you're already at the top of the mountain. And then lastly, if you traded those three or four players in a package to get Kevin Durant, I mean, Kevin Durant averages, what, like maybe 30 points a game, but you're giving up like 50 or 60 points from your offense if you trade all those players. Yeah, and, you know, on top of that or in addition to that, he's not five years younger than Curry, right? So, I mean, at best, he plays as long as Curry does. So it's not like he's five years younger and he's going to extend that championship window. You know, he's the same age as Curry and the fun bunch with significantly more injuries. Yes, yes. Like, let's go back to Jokic. If the trade was on the table for Jokic at 27 years old without an injury history, you do the deal. But this is a Kevin, Kevin Durant, you know, at 34. Yeah, I know. You nailed it. You nailed it. So, for me, I, I get it. I can understand, you know, the thought process, but it's not a fit. I think on Kevin Durant's side, it doesn't make a lot of sense for him if he's trying to – stamp you know his uh, approval or authority on the nba then going back to golden state is not the way to do that right because it is firmly steph curry's team now okay so okay so where are the other options we can talk about phoenix right yeah i think phoenix is a viable option so the, the thought with phoenix is i think it's a landing spot for kevin durant my question is you have to give up either Aiton or Booker, quite possibly both of them. And so my thought is, if you give up Booker and somebody else, and you get Kevin Durant back, you've aged your team, and Booker and Durant are roughly the same situation. They're both around 30-point scorers. If you give up Aiton, then you've lost a significant amount of youth, and a superstar big man who's coming to age, which is very hard to find in the NBA. And so I, I don't know if, if Phoenix makes sense for me either. Yeah, no, it's certainly a troubling situation too in the grand scheme of things because I do have questions, and I think I mentioned this on the show last week, about how uh, Devin Booker and uh, Kevin Durant could hypothetically coexist, both being kind of like you know the two guard or the main scorer in crunch time, Booker would pretty much have to be willing to uh, allow Durant to have that role at times, you know, for ego purposes, if nothing else, you know, with Durant's uh, pedigree. And so that that's something to me I think about. Um, I almost wonder, Matt, if, uh, you know, the Western Conference is not the best place for Durant. You know, the, we talk about how the Western Conference always has so much talent. I mean, maybe he should look at one of these uh, up-and-coming Eastern Conference teams and join forces with a team like that. So I'll throw out two, right? Let's let's just have fun. I'll throw out an East. I'll throw out a West, okay? My Western, well, you already know that I think Denver is a potential, right? I think you bring him into Denver. I think it's the, the atmosphere, the, the major city he wants to be in. You pair him with Jokic. I think that's incredible. Aside from Denver, I'm going to throw out the Mavericks, which you're probably excited to hear. I think Luka needs a number two, which in this case, Luka would become the number two. But if you pair a Luka and a KD, he gives you the size and the scoring that you need to win a title. So that's – I'm going to throw out the West. And in the East, I'm actually going to throw out Charlotte. What happens if you pair Kevin Durant with uh, 
LaMelo Ball and the fun bunch Terry Rozier that they have going on with the Hornets right now. That would be exciting. I really like the Mavericks uh, pairing. I think that that would just be a perfect just basketball move in addition to I think uh, Luka and, and Durant would probably get along too. And I just think basketball-wise, you know, you could add Durant and Luka could still play his position as the point guard, whereas, you know, with some of these other teams, you're kind of having to reshuffle your starting lineup a little bit or move some players. Um, Charlotte is interesting. I'll tell you, Cleveland, if LeBron does not return to Cleveland, Cleveland would be interesting for Durant. It would be. So the funny part about it is I was going to say that that is an awesome, uh, you know, idea you threw out right there. The missing piece with the Mavericks would be the big man. So kind of true center, some kind of true seven-foot big man to bang the boards like a JaVel McGee, then the Mavericks work out beautifully. However, like you said, Cleveland's the next landing spot. And what does Cleveland have? They have a true score. I forget his name. The boy is an absolute beast. And then they also have a newly minted big man who's in like his second or third year. And I want to say he almost made the, the all-star roster this past season. And so that would give you the big man and the number two score that KD needs in Cleveland. The only issue with uh, Cleveland I just thought of would be you're having to trade Durant. And so do you have to sacrifice too many assets from your current team to get him? Like with LeBron, I guess they could actually sign him as a free agent and keep everybody else. So, so that is the linchpin, right? And to go back to where we started with Golden State is whatever happens with KD, the team can't get one for one better because they have to do a sign and trade. So in order to acquire KD, you have to give up some of those incredible assets that you want to play alongside KD, right? And so exactly what you're saying it cripples the transaction a little bit because a trade has to happen. With that said, Joe, let me throw this out here, okay? And maybe this is where we end up. What happens if it's a three-team trade? What happens if it's the Brooklyn Nets, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and the L.A. Lakers? You send KD to be reunited with Russell Westbrook in the L.A. Lakers, or for the L.A. Lakers, you send LeBron over to Cleveland to finish out his career. That would be very compelling. Uh, that would be one of the maybe probably the, the most star-studded uh, trade we've had, you know, in the NBA that I can remember as far as like, you know, such two such big names being included in the same trade. Yeah, and, and what you would do is you would send the assets from Cleveland to Brooklyn for LeBron James. In return, Brooklyn ships KD to L.A., and then at that point, the only question is, where does James Harden end up? Do you reunite Harden, Westbrook, and Kevin Durant in L.A. because Philadelphia doesn't want Harden longer? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. You definitely expect some reshuffling here. I mean, do you have a timeline prediction as far as when you think we may see some of these dominoes finally fall? Yeah, I think you have a few more players that have to shake out. I think – LeBron is still moving. If anyone thinks LeBron is playing in L.A. next year, you're dreaming, right? You're absolutely freaking dreaming. So I think the LeBron piece has to move. Of course, KDPA piece, you still got to see where Kyrie lands. I mean, I know he signed with Brooklyn, but there's going to be a sign-in trade there. There's going to be a sign-in trade with Harden. I'm thinking 
you're not going to see it shake out until the end of July, right? As we get closer to the end of July, you'll start to see some of these moves. But I'm telling you, it's all going to center around KD and LeBron with the kicker being Kyrie Irving. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They're definitely going to center around those big names. You know, the NBA, uh, very similar, you know, how kind of quarterbacks drive things in the NFL. You know, the NBA definitely driven by the big name players. And Matt, speaking of quarterbacks, I'd be remiss if I did not, as we transition here, get your take on the trade uh, yesterday or this week in the NFL with Baker Mayfield going from Cleveland to the Carolina Panthers. Yeah, honestly, I'll keep it super simple. I like, you know, I still think that Baker Mayfield is kind of an unwritten book. I don't think he's a number one draft pick. I think that was ridiculous. I never think he thought he was. But I do think there's potential there, and I think Carolina's a good fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I remember thinking that when uh, Baker Mayfield was picked uh, number one overall, I was like, if you're Cleveland, I, I know you think he's the number one pick, but I'm not even sure if the other 31 teams in the league would take him in the first round. You know, He might even be available in the second round. So it always puzzled me, uh, similarly, that he was the number one overall pick. Never really seen a guy, I guess, outside of Kyler Murray just catapult up draft boards the way uh, Baker Mayfield did that season. But if you're Carolina, you know, you suddenly have – such a crowded quarterback room. That may be the story not enough uh, people are talking about on TV is, you know, you've got Matt Corral, you've got Darnold, and you've got Baker Mayfield. I mean, my goodness. Yeah, and, and of course, you always have the Cam Newton situation hanging out there. Now, by no means has he re-signed with Carolina, but apparently, Joe, the question I have for you is, you, you traded for Baker Mayfield. Okay, doesn't Baker Mayfield look a whole lot like Matt Corral? And hasn't Baker Mayfield proven that he's not as good as everybody thought? So my question to you is, if you have Matt Corral, even understanding he's a rookie and rookies take time, what exactly have you gained? I don't know. And that, to me, is one of the biggest questions. It's kind of like, what is the message to your fan base and what is the message internally to your team? Is this some type of test for Corral where you want to challenge him and see if he'll work harder, see if Darnold will work harder? Um, because otherwise, uh, this quarterback room just doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you felt that uh, when they drafted Corral, what, in the third round, you kind of felt like that was a steal based on the fact that some people had him in the first round or second round. Felt like, you know, he's a potential guy that could lead a franchise as the starting quarterback. And so what message are you sending to just go out and get a 27-year-old quarterback? Yeah, you know, my only thought is, yeah, I like Matt Brown, and I think there's potential there, especially in kind of the Kyler Murray offense that's run in the NFL nowadays. I definitely think there is – opportunity for Matt Corral to possibly be a starting quarterback, right? He did really great things at Ole Miss, and I think there's a, a potential there. So my thought is you bring in Baker Mayfield because you do need a starter day one, and clearly Sam Darnold is not in, right? So Sam Darnold is the true backup. If someone gets hurt, Darnold's the backup. You bring Baker Mayfield in to be your starter and uh, to really – 
make Matt Corral compete, make them compete with each other as Darnold the backup and kind of the veteran in the locker room to coach these two guys. That may be what they're doing. That may be the strategy. Um, and we'll see if it works out for Carolina. You know, definitely a lot of pressure this season on uh, Matt Rule and uh, this organization. You know, they parted ways with uh, Joe Brady as their offensive coordinator during last season. Um, you know, you have a division that is kind of a little bit in uh, transition, you know, with Sean Payton uh, moving on from New Orleans with pretty much question marks everywhere except for uh, Tampa Bay, also with uh, Matt Ryan's trade. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. And, and Matt Ryan ended up where again? Remind me, because I felt like that flew under the radar. It's, it's the Colts, isn't it? Yeah, it's the third year in a row the Colts uh, trade for another quarterback. And, and to me, you know, Matt Ryan is far from done. It's really, do the Colts, can they either find the wide receivers or do they have the, the wide receivers in-house? I guess they have Pittman. Uh, I'm not a big uh, T.Y. Hilton guy, but otherwise – I think Matt Ryan was kind of a steal because he's not washed just yet. He's got a few good seasons left, and Indianapolis has a good team. They, they really do, Matt. And you look at uh, the makeup of their team with an offensive line that's gotten better and better, and you think about Jonathan Taylor being arguably a top two or three running back in the league. He could, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't surprise me if he gets MVP votes this year. If he won the MVP this year, it wouldn't surprise me. And with that division in the AFC South – I kind of feel like the Texans may take a step back this year. Like, it is wide open for the Colts to win it. I think so. And they have a good defense on top of that, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good pickup for them. Mm-hmm. I, and, and I'm glad you said that. The Colts are a team to watch that nobody's talking about. You're going to hear so many people concentrate on the AFC West this year in the AFC with, like, Denver and Russell Wilson and KC and all those teams that are getting all the hype. The Raiders, all, all those teams, but really Indianapolis may be the team to watch. Yeah, just plodding along, right? Running the football, you know, just playing good defense, plodding their way into the, the playoffs, and who knows, maybe they make a semi-decent run in the playoffs. They certainly could. And speaking, Matt, of teams that want to make a run in the playoffs, before we get into our hungry take tonight, I wanted to give my thoughts on the current MLB standings and specifically shed some light on the New York teams and the Big Apple. And uh, it has truly been the Big Apple, uh, uh, literally and figuratively, this year with uh, both New York teams in the National League, the Mets, American League, the Yankees, uh, running away with the best records in their respective leagues. And with the Yankees, Matt, I was looking at their stats today. And, you know, Aaron Judge is one of the more popular players in the league, and he's already got – 30 home runs now. They've got Giancarlo Stanton with like over 20 home runs. They've got Anthony Rizzo, the former Chicago Cub, with over 20 home runs. So you've conceivably got three players on pace for 40 or more home runs, and Judge is on pace for over 50 home runs. He might even flirt with 60 this year. And so just a high-profile, high-octane, exciting offense – combined with a pitching staff led by uh, Garrett Cole, a bullpen that's been really good, and this team is just off to a torrid pace. The only question that I have, and I think I said this a couple of weeks ago on the show, is similar to Tennessee baseball this year in college baseball. I always worry about teams in baseball that get off to a too good of a start. 
because I feel like it kind of wears on you through a long baseball season where you play every day and you tax your pitching staff and you're trying to win basically every game and the pitchers log so many innings that you get to the playoffs kind of on your last leg. And you think about it, Matt, last year when we saw the Braves win the World Series, they were one of the last teams to make the playoffs, and so they came in fresher. And so that's certainly something that I want to watch with the Yankees this year. But what do you think about, like, how big it is for baseball to have the New York teams having this kind of success? I think it's, I think it's extremely important, right? I mean, anytime the Yankees are relevant, the only thing I can really, you know – I guess uh, analogize it to or compare it to would be Tiger Woods and golf, right? Like baseball needs the Yankees. Um, I, I'm trying to think of another sport that relies on a team. The truth is, I don't know of one, right? I, I, the I Cowboys? Lot, uh, you would say the Cowboys. The problem is the Cowboys always disappoint, right? They never, they never actually accomplish anything. And that's my struggle. Uh, for a while, I, I think it was the Patriots in the NFL. Like, I know uh, the Patriots were definitely not America's team, but I felt like America needed the Patriots to be the tone setters in the NFL. Like, they were the big bad brother that always helped write the story, right? Tom Brady, I guess, more than anything. And so, to me, the Yankees are, are probably the most important team in baseball, and you really need the Yankees – to be relevant, very much like the Boston Red Sox, in order to really write the story of baseball in a season. And so I think more so than any other sport, and again, the only one I really know is is golf. If, if Tiger Woods is not playing golf, then golf is not even barely on TV. So I think it's wonderful that the Yankees are doing great. You know, I agree with you on the pitching side. I think pitching is so important in baseball. Even a person who is not a baseball savant like myself, right? I'm a total baseball idiot. Baseball, to I mean, uh, pitching to me is the more, most important part about baseball. As your pitching goes, so too does your team. And the last thing I tossed out, I tossed out, Joe. Well, actually, I'll let you touch on that, and then, and then I'll come back to my last one. So, no, all great points there. And I also wanted to say something about the New York Mets because their pitching situation is really interesting. They're off to this, you know, best record in the National League East, or the National League, I should say, without two of their best pitchers playing a lot this year. Like, Jacob DeGrom, arguably the best pitcher in the National League, has not even pitched this season. He's hoping to get back at some point in the next month. And then Max Scherzer, another great pitcher right now, in his first season with the team, has been on the injured list for a couple of weeks and just got back the other day. And so definitely a testament to the Mets to still have uh, this great start to their season without the services of both of those pitchers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my fault there is that the Mets lesser than the Yankees, of course. The Yankees by far the priority. But anytime you can have that good subway series, right, Yankees and Mets, I think it's important for baseball. Anytime Boston Red Sox are relevant is really important for baseball. And football, to me, Green Bay, you know, as I think about it, outside of the Patriots, it would be Green Bay. Like, understood that Green Bay is a regional team, but it feels like when Green Bay is winning and is in the playoffs, football is a little bit more interesting. So I put uh, the Yankees up there, the Boston Red Sox, the uh, New York sports up there with the Tiger Woods, the Patriots, the Green Bays of the world. 
Yeah, it, it definitely, uh, you know, kind of makes it uh, – it, it gets more eyeballs to the TVs and, and the games and people following the sport because you have the, kind of those polarizing teams, you know, the biggest market in the world, like all those factors and just the star power of, you know, players like an Aaron Judge or a John Carlos Stanton, et cetera, that really adds to it. But, you know, if there is, Matt, a Subway Series in the World Series, should it be sponsored by Subway? Would that be the Subway, Subway Series? Funny if it was sponsored by like Quiznos or Schlotzkys or something instead. <laughs> that would definitely be contradictory there. But uh, speaking of star power, the last. What's that? One last thing on baseball. Yeah. One last thing on baseball. I'd love to get your take on, and that is, it's funny to me that we now celebrate 40 and 50 home run seasons when, what, 10, 15 years ago, we're old now, but 10, 15 years ago, we were celebrating 60 and 70 home run seasons. No doubt. Like, I remember it was a big story, I think, five years ago when John Carlos Stanton got 59 home runs with the Marlins in one season and won the MVP. And that was, like, huge, you know, to see somebody get almost to 60 home runs. And you're right, like, 50 is kind of that new uh, measuring scale. Yeah, I just think it's, it's phenomenal, I guess, post-steroid scandal. But it was interesting to, to hear you talk about the kind of the home run uh, race this year. Yeah, the expectations have changed. And the, and the last thing I thought of with the home run race, you know, Shohei Otani, I think he hit like 46 home runs last year. This year he's not quite mad on the same home run pace, but uh, as far as pitching, his pitching has actually been better this year than it was last year. And so every time I see the success of uh, Shohei Otani with the Angels, I think about the fact, you know, you were one of the first people uh, that, of course, uh, noticed uh, his potential. I mean, me and the Japanese translator, right? I mean, I was right there. It was like I was in a Japanese dugout scouting myself. I mean, look, I don't want to take credit when credit's not due, but facts are facts. I was like the first person in all of America to find out about Shohei Otani, and I'm going to ride that to the grave, especially considering that it's a baseball player. There you go. Definitely ironic, you know, that uh, you had that prediction, but definitely give you credit for uh, – for that prediction early on. So now that we've talked, Matt, through some basketball, some NFL uh, buzz, and of course uh, some baseball standings, for our last segment, I wanted to, of course, talk about one of our favorite segments of the show, The Hungry Take. And for tonight, Matt, I wanted to have some fun kind of getting your uh, stream of consciousness on the art of fine dining on a cultural level. Well, I can certainly ask you some specific questions, I think, that will make the dialogue fun. So, yeah, I'll do my best to fill them, no pun intended. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, fine dining. You know, you think about uh, the art of going to a restaurant with tablecloths, you know, of getting good service, of, uh, you know, having a menu with a lot of options, uh, you know, of having maybe uh, an elaborate dessert menu, having, uh, you know, uh, high-priced items that you have to pay for. The first question, Matt, I want to ask you about is, when you go out to a restaurant, does, like, it really matter to you that much as far as the experience having, like, good service, good tablecloths, or are you more concerned about the quality of the food? Yeah, bring, bring me quality of the food, right? But I think that 
that or bring me quality food, I should say. Sorry. But I think you, you bring up an interesting thought there because as you were talking about service, the tablecloth, it was a fine dining. Get a fine everyone's take on it, right? And, and my initial thoughts are, well, the prices are going to be high. Oh, well, everything is going to be a la carte. Well, you'll know because they're going to serve uh, $200 bottles of champagne. Okay. Or you're going to have a waiter that's in basically a tuxedo for the most part. Me? None of that. That's how you know you're experiencing fine dining. That when you're eating lunch on, when the waiter or waitress comes back to refill your drink or just check on the table, do they break out a table scraper and scrape the crumbs off the table? Answer yes. That's how you're at a fine dining. So, folks, I think that ties into customer. Well, one of the overarching our overarching questions, too, I wanted to ask you um, before I get into a couple of more specific questions is, um, on its face, do you, would you say that fine dining is overrated or not? Uh, without a doubt, yes. So, so five-star prices, two-star food. That would be my overall, like, tagline there. Fine dining equals... Five star prices, two star food, and that's kind of the similar view that I, I share, Matt. I concur with that assessment, and I think that on a cultural and societal level, there's a lot of pressure and expectation. You know that if you have a big event in your life, like whether it's uh, celebrating an anniversary, having like a retirement party, um, you know, uh, getting a, a new job, whatever it is. You see people, you know, instantly think they need to gravitate towards like the best place, you know, as far as five star in town. And I feel like so often I go to a place like that, and you know, it's kind of cool, the experience and everything. But I've often sat there and, you know, seen uh, the, the quality of the food. And I'm like, you know, I really could have done a lot better at a, at a place, you know, with uh, with better food. Yeah, absolutely. I think the essence of five of. Uh, fine dining is the exclusivity that it brings, right? It's, it's not the fact that the food's good or all these other, they have amazing desserts, any of that. I think the idea is that there's exclusivity that comes with it. You eat at this place and yes, the meal costs you $300 that most everyone can't afford. And so instead of a restaurant being a packed house, you get 15 or 20 people in it instead of a packed house. And that's the exclusivity, and that's really what you're paying for with fine dining, right? It's, it's segregating you from the riffraff or the commoners more than anything. Yeah, you know, that, that's true. Another thing I thought of, you know how oftentimes we'll be eating out and we've talked about, you know, people, uh, you know, being notorious in this day and age for, you know, not being able to turn away from their cell phones, you know, if they're out eating with a friend or whatever. I wonder, have you noticed, I'm trying to think about this myself, 
if the uh, uh, obsession or uh, addiction to cell phones has uh, matriculated into fine dining as much as other places. So that's an interesting concept. And with, you know, the situation with COVID, I have not been in a fine dining restaurant since I feel like uh, 2019, I would say, which is a long time. And really from 2019 to 2022 right now, I feel like the addiction to cell phones has hit another level. I think we can thank uh, some of that in part to COVID, right? And, and working remotely and, uh, you know, uh, dealing with friends and family from afar. And so I haven't experienced that just yet, to be honest. With you. No, that, that's certainly true. You, you feel like the addiction is greater kind of out of necessity because you think about how many people you stay in touch with through the phone opposed to being in person. And I also think that fine dining was one of the industries hit the hardest with the pandemic because you had all the food to go. You had food delivery services just going through the roof with uh, all the money they were making. But like fine dining really didn't have anything to offer. Like really, Matt, that maybe makes our point as much as anything. The fact that you know people didn't want the fine dining food delivered because the food wasn't good enough without the experience. Exactly. Uh, you nailed it. That's amazing how me and you just parametricized everything down like that. That is incredible. But Joe, let's, let's tie it back in. When you are fine dining, do you think it's acceptable or have you ever really had deep sports conversations around a fine dining experience and or have you ever seen sports on the televisions, whether it be the bar close, you know, like the bar and the restaurant, but have you ever seen sports being played in a fine dining atmosphere? I'd have to think about that. I feel like I've been to maybe a couple of college towns where it's so prevalent, the sports, you know, linked with the city that they've had uh, maybe a football game on uh, in the backdrop, but it, it seems like it's like fewer televisions. Like you might have like one TV in the bar area, like uh, for instance, um, it's not, I don't know if it's like the finest of finest dining, but the Italian restaurant in Hattiesburg, Tabella, have you been there? Yes. They, so they have like the one TV by the bar and that's it. Like they, they don't have TVs, you know, wall to wall. Right. So, so there you go. So Fine dining is not good for, for sports, right? It's not good to watch sports, not necessarily very to talk sports. Primarily, you're going to talk whatever the special event is or a potentially business if you're there on business. The food is two-star at best. The price for five-star. Joe, what good is fine dining anyways? <laughs> well, here's what I would say. You know, I feel like both of us really try to work hard it being able to talk and trying to talk or relate to anybody. I know that's something we were discussing uh, recently when we were talking, but I will say it kind of tests my limits in a fine dining setting, especially if I were to end up in a fine dining situation with like five or more people where like, you know, everybody's going to kind of take turns carrying the conversation. Like it's definitely probably not going to revolve around sports. No, no, I don't think so. So I, you know, fine dining to me is not even applicable in, in the sports arena, right? It's just, it's, it's not where the conversation goes. It's, you know, you'll never have 
uh, sports being played in the background. It's just not something that you relate to fine dining, really. It's almost like everybody's just trying to kind of one-up each, one each other. It's kind of like just kind of this social expectation that we, we got to do this because we just got to do this. Yeah, and quite frankly, it would be a fantastic uh, social experiment to uh, go to a fine dining establishment wearing nothing but sports jerseys, right, to kind of break the social norms of fine dining. Yeah, well, you know, you have places in New Orleans where it's like, I think uh, you have to have a suit and tie or a coat and tie even to enter the restaurant. Crazy, crazy. Yeah, like uh, my dad actually had a colleague he knew that would go down like once a week, like in the 80s, uh, and drive to New Orleans and eat at this uh, restaurant, Galator's. And it was like you had to wear a coat every time you ate there. And that's what he and his wife and another family member would do like every Wednesday at lunch kind of as their, their getaway was uh, have that fine dining experience two hours away. I want to find a place that requires a cummerbund and a bow tie in order to eat there. <laughs> you might have to open that place up to make that requirement yourself. I love it. Yeah, that would be fantastic. I'd be the only person in there. <laughs> you definitely have that exclusivity. Exclusivity, you yourself and I, basically. Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, Matt. Well, I mean, that's all I have as far as fine dining, but that was definitely a fun conversation. Yeah, man, absolutely, as always. All right, well, uh, fun show here tonight, Matt. I really enjoyed it. You know, people say this is the time of the year where the sports uh, world is, you know, slower, but we definitely here at Hungry Takes, you know, insist on keeping you guys entertained and and kind of uh, going away from that narrative and hope that uh, everybody uh, enjoyed the show tonight. Yeah, and look, sports, we're in a lull right now, but give it about two or three weeks. Things are going to heat up, and they're going to heat up in a quick way, right? There's going to be a bunch of splashes in the free agent basketball market. That is going to propel us right into the start of good old college football and preseason NFL, and then off to the races we go once again. Yeah, it'll really get crazy, too, when you have, like, the NFL training camps opening up at the end of July. Exactly. So only a few more weeks away before, uh, really, we get hot and heavy and, and the drama of sports plays out yet another year. Yeah, it'll certainly be an action-packed, no doubt. And I know, Matt, that um, hopefully our next episode will be action-packed, and I can't wait to, uh, to the next show. Absolutely, man. Look forward to it. All right. Hope everybody has a great night and we will talk to you soon.